You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with Frederic Laloux, who is the author of this book, Reinventing Organizations. There's actually a couple different versions of the book. There's the illustrated and the unillustrated book. I, I'm holding up the illustrated version. Either one is actually very good. The unillustrated has more text, but you know there's also some cool pictures in the illustrated version. And in addition to authoring this book, Frederic, you've been working with uh, a number of companies, giving talks, helping them to rethink their management. So welcome, Frederic. Yeah, wonderful to be with you. So I think the way in which you start off the book, and, and I think you've started off a lot of talks and interviews by saying that something's broken, right? There's something in management, there's something in, in companies that's broken. In the business school, we teach management. And I mean, yes, we make changes from time to time in how we do it. But fundamentally, the way in which we teach management isn't really all that different from the way we've taught it for decades. And I think one of the most important points you're making is that the way in which people manage companies for the most part is, is maladaptive. It's not working, not only for the purposes of the company, but also for the people who work within the company. Is, is that a fair assessment, fair summary of your main point? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen the arc from the time I was a, coming out of university and joining a company. And 15, 20 years ago, there was still faith in our management systems. Like at the time, it was GE and Jack Welch that was sort of the hero and like GE had figured out how management works. And I don't know anybody who says that management really works today. Like all of the business leaders that I talk to will behind closed doors admit that everything is too slow and people aren't motivated and it's not innovative enough and it's all too bureaucratic and the engagement scores are dismal for most organizations. And so everybody will sort of openly or behind closed doors admit that somehow they they don't know they're at their wit's end. And this really got me to, to do this research that led me to write this, this book and to consider, understand that the way we think about management is tied to the broader worldview that we carry, which is for most of us unconscious. We just see the world. That's just how the world we think operates. And this is how we should structure and run an organization. And so in the first part of the book, I, I do a sort of real world tour of different stages, you know, humanity has gone through distinct stages in the way it looks at the world, right? And a lot of philosophers and historians and anthropologists have looked at this, you know, there's a way to look at the world when we were hunter-gatherers. And then there's a, a leap that we made in a way to look at the world that is entirely different when we went to the age of agriculture. That's when the first large organization started. And we had one way we thought that we should manage organizations. And then we made this other big leap when the scientific and industrial revolution came about. And with that leap, we completely changed the way we think about management. And that's sort of the dominant management view. That's the one that's being taught in all business schools. And that's the one that is getting to the end of its shelf life. We've had another leap, which sort of the information age, but the, that management model is just catching up. And now we're about to make sort of another leap. And, you know, some people call it sort of more integral age or holistic age or whatever name you want to give it. And what is fascinating is when you look at business leaders, depending on which of these worldviews they inhabit, they will adhere to a number of ways to think that they should structure and run their organizations. And so I think that that part of the book is quite fun of like just looking at these different stages. And most of the time, people recognize that very quickly, like, oh, yeah, that's this kind of organization I was in, or that's this kind of organization. And so we've had these leaps before. We've had these moments where old management models were at the end of their shelf life and suddenly we're ready for something new. And I think that is what, what is happening right now. I'm trained as an historian. And so when I give talks on digital transformation and you know the things that a lot of managers are struggling with, I make the point that we tend to think of innovation coming from the world of technology and then management just sort of you know, responds. But economists are very skeptical of that. I mean, economists think that management, there's no such thing as an improvement in, in management. But the point I like to make is that when you look at the industrial revolution, when you look at the agricultural revolution, when you look at the current digital revolution, these are fundamentally managerial innovations and that it's the managerial innovations that make the technology possible. Is there really such a thing as progress in management, better and worse over time, or is it just management is management? 
yeah, I mean, there's obviously progress. There's obviously these big leaps. Let me just illustrate that with a leap that most people, I think, will recognize. From historians and anthropologists, we seem to know that the first large organizations were born when we made a shift to the age of agriculture and the age of civilizations. And that's when the first large stable organizations were born. Think the Catholic Church, you know, is this incredibly stable organization, or the West Indies companies, right? Like suddenly you had these organizations that could last for centuries, that could send people overseas, that you couldn't like directly manage. And these organizations, the, the reason that they managed to do that is that with the leap to agriculture came two big breakthroughs. One of them was the fixed hierarchy, the fixed reporting line. People in boxes, I'm your boss. You know, people have ranks at the time. They could see that even in the uniforms, right? You have the Pope and you have the archbishops and the bishops and you have the, you know, the priests and everybody is in their box and there's very clear reporting lines. That brought incredible stability. The other thing that was invented at that time was stable, replicable processes. The Catholic Church will do next year what it did this year, what it did last year, pretty much what it did 100 years ago. And that was one stable model. And then came the scientific industrial revolution. And we suddenly had a leap in management thinking that came with real breakthroughs. One of the breakthroughs was management by objectives. In the previous agrarian model, people told you what to do and how to do it, and there was pretty much no measurement. To my knowledge, priests in the Catholic Church aren't measured on really anything, right? There's no target, there's no objectives, right? But then suddenly we had this breakthrough of like, no, no, you know, we can actually have these cascading targets and we no longer need to tell people exactly how they need to do things as long as we give them a target. And then that came with a whole host of managerial innovations. That's how the HR department was born. That's how budgets were born and, and targets and objectives and KPIs and incentive plans and all of that yearly annual reviews. Another big breakthrough was simply innovation. Like, no, instead of doing next year what we did last year, actually, the faster we innovate, the more market share we'll gain, the more we'll outcompete our competitors, right? And that's how you had marketing and product management and all of these things that were more. And they, again, had a lot of management repercussions. So that, that's an example of a leap that by now, almost all companies have integrated, right? In the 1940s and 50s, most organizations were still pretty much managed like the Catholic Church. So this is a pretty recent innovation that we've forgotten because we've by now sort of integrated it. And now this model is again sort of hitting a wall and something else is coming up. Yeah, so a Marxist historian would say that when the, the means of production change, then you need to have a different kind of organizational structure to make the optimal use of those, those means of production. And so this teal form of organization that you describe, that you, that you talk about, is this something that, that you think is, is made possible by a modern economy, by the modern means of production, so to speak? Or is this something that, that kind of has, has existed in some way, shape, or form for more or less forever? It just hasn't had the opportunity to flourish. I think it's more of the latter. I mean, if you look back, there's examples of this that you already find 100 years ago. You know, even some people who've sort of written about some aspects of that. But for some strange reason, and, you know, some people will put it down to the times are ripe, the technology is there, the consciousness is ripe for it, who knows? But suddenly the times are ripe and we see it is emerging in lots of different places. So something that had been sort of super experimental, always been incredibly successful, but where people always said like, this is not possible, so this is not going to last. You now see it happening on a much bigger scale. Yeah, well, I think economists are the ones that find it maybe a little bit uncomfortable, particularly when you talk about the first feature of, of these new organizations, which is self-management. And I think that's a bit of a threat to someone who's trained in management someone who spends their life in, in management, who expects a position of authority within an organization to be told that management is no longer really necessary. Well, we're going to walk through sort of each of the, the different components of what you call a teal organization. Maybe we'll start with self-management. How do you think about that? Maybe I just want to preface that conversation with the fact that I call it teal because there is this one philosopher who's looked at these different stages, right? And instead of calling them agrarian and industrial and right. you know, information age or whatever you want to call it, he gave these stages colors, the names as colors. And so this new stage that is emerging, he called it teal, and I just reused his language. You also call it evolutionary, right? Yeah. The other thing I want to say is that this is not a model that I cooked up. This is not a theoretical thing. This is me observing stuff that is emerging everywhere and just studying organizations whose leader were really discontent with the existing model and who went out to create something really entirely different, just an entirely different way of managing their organizations, often by a lot of trial and error. 
and ended up stumbling upon something that is really powerful that worked extraordinarily well. And they often thought that they were the only crazy fools doing that. And at some point when I found one, two, three, four, 12 of them, I saw that there was this pattern, sometimes like incredibly similar practices and processes, even though they often thought that they were the only crazy fools doing it. So I just try to explain that pattern of what seems to be emerging. So this is very much a practice-based observation, not a theoretical model. But I, I did indeed sort of characterize three big breakthroughs, just as we had these breakthroughs of management by objectives. You know, in the past, there seem to be three new breakthroughs that are coming online right now. And the first one, which is indeed the most challenging for many people, is, is self-management. So what you see now is organizations emerge, small, medium, and some really large organizations with thousands of people who work entirely on a self-managing basis. Powerful example of that is an organization in the Netherlands called Buurtzorg, and they're now 14,000 people. They're extraordinarily, they grow at an incredible speed. They're best employee every year. Like, you know, everybody wants to work for them. They're just an extraordinary organization, and they're 14,000, and they don't have a single boss-subordinate relationship. They don't have a single manager, middle manager. And I'm always wary when I talk about this because I feel like by now, probably most, you know, half of you listeners will like stop this podcast because it's just unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable for us, right? We've grown up in a worldview that tells us that for any group of people larger than say four or five, you need a structure and you need a boss, right? Otherwise this isn't working. We all have this default model that if you don't have a boss, then we might be in sort of 1960s, 70s, hippie-dippie communities where people talk all night and try to reach consensus. And it's true, like you need structure, but what these organizations show very successfully, and some of them have been running like this for decades, is that you need structure, but you don't need a boss-subordinate relationship, that that is a shortcut we've been taking, and that there is actually much more powerful ways to organize. But how is that different from just decentralized decision-making? I mean, economists always talk about centralized versus decentralized decision-making organizations that are more or less kind of centrally planned versus ones that where there's a lot of discretion and, and autonomy. Is this just sort of taking that spectrum and pushing it to, to an extreme? No. Actually, if you think about it, any organization, if, if you think of an organization as sort of a living organism, right, there are some decisions that need to be centralized. That's just the nature of the decision. Like it's, it's actually makes sense for the whole organizations to have a few things in common. And many other decisions can be decentralized. And so that always seems a bit of an absurd ideological discussion. Actually, just look at every single decision. And does that decision make sense? You know, some need to be centralized, others need to be decentralized. Now, clearly, our existing management model, the pyramid, tends to centralize way more than we need. So that's why a lot of people think like decentralization is the natural way to go. But the point of this model is not to decentralize for the sake of decentralizing. The point of this model is Instead of only having a few powerful people, Gary Hamill puts this really right, right? like our, our existing model asks way too much of too few people at the top and way too little of everyone else. And so a model where actually everybody is fully empowered to act on whatever tension they feel, whatever opportunities they feel, is of course going to be way more powerful than a model that sucks all the decisions up to the top and where you sit in endless meetings and you're not allowed to make the decision because it has to cascade upwards and then it lands in some quicksand. And so the point is to, to make everyone powerful. The point is not necessarily to decentralize. And we realize that instead of having fixed power hierarchies, which we have in traditional organizations, right? The org chart, like I'm your boss, so I have power over you, right? I have power over the project you might do. I have power over if you're hired or fired or how much money you make, is replaced by flexible organic hierarchies where just depending on who knows what about shit, you know, who has passion for what, you know, those people suddenly get into a position where they can do things. And so if you know stuff that I don't know, even though I might be your senior, it would be stupid for me to have formal power over you. Like you should take the lead in that thing. And in other things, I will take the lead. And so what you have is actually very fluid hierarchies. And this is just one example of all of the misunderstandings around self-management, like the problem with self-management is as soon as you say it, a lot of us, including me, when I started researching this, have all of these wrong ideas. Like, oh, self-management means everybody is the same. Everybody's equal. No, it's like everybody is as powerful as they can be. We actually want hierarchy. We just want organic hierarchies. We don't want to be fixed in boxes and reporting lines. So does that mean then that the hierarchies could assemble and then disassemble depending on the needs of the organization at any one point in time? 
Exactly. And in order to do that, there's a number of structures and processes that make that possible. So another misunderstanding is to think that self-management means just anything goes and it's all hippy-dippy. And it's the opposite. It has just as much structure as our existing management model. It's just different structure. And so there's very clear rules about who can make what decision. Who do you need to consult to make these decisions? It's no longer a boss that, by virtue of their position, can make that decision. But so who can make what decision? And if we have conflict, how do we deal with that? And if there's no boss, who decides who gets a pay raise, right? So there's these very practical questions that have to be addressed in whatever management model that you have. And what is fascinating is that we have now enough of these self-managing organizations that have been around for decades, a lot of them just spectacularly successful, that we actually know how to do each of these building blocks. So the, the problem is not so much how you do these things. It's actually pretty, most of this is pretty common sense. It's simply like, do we have leaders who get this, who wrap their head around this and who understand it. So I think one way to interpret the book is to think that these archetypes are necessarily exclusive, right? That organizations either are a hierarchical or they're evolutionary, but organizations will borrow from these different styles of management, right? And maybe you have pockets of self-management within some larger hierarchical organization. Yeah, you see that a lot happening now. It's like you have these large organizations and then there's pockets that are starting to experiment and it's semi-comfortable sometimes. The two models then sometimes rub, but you see, you see a lot of that happening. And the goal is not to adhere to any model. So sometimes I have business leaders come to me and say, like, I want to be a TL organization. And I go like, what does that even mean? That was just me trying to sort of define what this next stage is like. But ultimately, you don't want to be a model. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what is it about the old model that's no longer working for you? And what is it that you want to do? And borrow as much from the new and take some of the old and just make your own thing, right? The goal is not to be a model. The goal is for your organization to flourish. So if, if you were evaluating a particular business problem or you're evaluating a particular organization in a particular industry, would you be able to diagnose, for instance, what organizational style would be optimal for, for that activity? In other words, if could the pyramids have been built with a teal organization, right? Could the U.S. Army have won World War II if it had been more, more teal-like, right? So when we look at these organizations, right, they seem to be in certain industries, they seem to be engaging in certain functions. Is there a way of figuring out, you know, where these organizational styles are most likely to flourish? Yeah, I mean, there's a clear relationship to the complexity that organizations are dealing with. So the lower the complexity, the earlier models you can use. You have a pretty low complexity thing, you can still use sort of the agrarian model. And if you have somewhat more complex, you need sort of this scientific industrial model that business schools teach. But if complexity goes beyond that, there's a moment where this is starting to break down, which is what we're seeing now. And then you need to make the leap to a model like these self-managing organizations. The army example that you gave to me is fascinating because in sort of traditional armies in the way we imagine them, the infantry, you know, like thousands of soldiers marching, you can have a pretty old-fashioned army model, which is this agrarian model. Right? You have a few generals who understand the whole complexity of the battle plan, you know, a few people who pour over the plan, and then they send these hundreds of thousands of people to just march. Because the complexity is pretty low, you just look at your battle plan. But if you look at elite teams, the Navy SEALs that get dropped behind enemy lines that have to take down Osama bin Laden, these teams have always been self-managing. They have always been, and I encourage you to read this fantastic book called Teams of Teams by General McChrystal, who went to this bigger challenge when the U.S. was basically losing the war in Iraq, where he had all of these self-managing local teams, but he tried to make the whole special forces to be self-managing because that was the only way to deal with that complexity. When you're in that complex environment behind enemy lines, there is no way to say, hey, I will have to ask my boss and report to him and wait for him to make a decision, and he will talk to his own bosses and these teams have to be self-managing to be able to deal with that complexity. So it's interesting to me that the counter-argument that a lot of people use when they think about self-management is, yeah, self-management is all good and fine, you know, when things are going well, but when the shit hit the fan, when things are really tough, then, come on, then you need hierarchy. And it's the exact opposite. It's when things are extraordinarily complex that hierarchy simply cannot deal with it and that you need self-management. And, and General McChrystal makes that argument in his book much more beautifully than, than I did in mine, like how High complexity cannot simply not be managed with traditional fixed hierarchies. Yeah, I have a colleague who says that if you want to learn to run a 19th century railroad, get an MBA, because there is a management style that, that fits that, and it's just not the one that fits a modern, say, software company. But you also distinguish between 
complexity and complication, right? So complicated and complex are a little bit different. Can you talk about that? I mean, you, you also reference complex adaptive systems and use natural analogies, analogies of large-scale organic systems. Can you talk more about how people get those mixed up? I want to really make it super tangible because this otherwise sounds like some philosophical debate. You're complex, complicated. Why you know, would I care? One of these self-managing organizations felt that that was so important that they talk about this a lot and they use these two very simple images, metaphors that I love. They say like a complicated system is like an airplane, like a Boeing or an Airbus airplane. It's complicated. There's like hundreds of thousands of parts, but it responds to a linear logic. So if you were to take out a part at random from that airplane and you ask an engineer what will happen to the airplane, he will be able or she will be able to tell you, oh, with that part missing, the airplane will still fly or not fly or it will behave like this or like that. Because there's a linear logic, it's pretty predictable, right? That's complicated. A complex system is a bowl of spaghetti. A bowl of spaghetti has way fewer parts, right? And they're all the same. And maybe there's 50 parts or 60 parts in your bowl. But if there's one strand of spaghetti hanging out of the bowl and you start pulling on it, not even the fastest supercomputer will be able to predict what happens. Will that get out? Will it be tied in a knot? What will happen? That is a complex system. You know, it escapes linear logic. It escapes prediction. And so if you want to pull it out, like the only thing you can do is really look cleverly like, and then start pulling and then stopping and then listening. How's the rest of the system responding? And then maybe I'll need to pull on another one first to create some slack. And this is really the crux where our organizations are no longer able to deal with the complexity of our time with the hierarchical model. We still believe that our organizations are these complicated systems like a Boeing. And so we have people at the very top making strategies and believing that they can understand the full complexity of that system and then make brilliant plans, five-year plans, you know, have all the milestones and then have everybody execute to plan. But of course, actually what we know is that the world and their organization has become a bowl of spaghetti. And so they believe that they have the perfect plan. They start pulling on the spaghetti and then of course something entirely different happens, but they just keep pulling and pulling because the plan tells them to do that. Then they stop and then go like, what the fuck? And then we need to fire someone or we need to make a new plan. And But they've actually failed to notice like, no, we're now no longer an airplane. We're now a bowl of spaghetti. And that just needs an entirely different way of dealing with things. And five-year plans no longer work. And a lot of other things that used to work no longer work. Yeah. And I think you you talk about the difference in the mentality or the mindset of planning and controlling versus that of sort of sensing and, and responding. And in the sort of planning and controlling world, that's where you have these budget cycles and that's where you have these strategic plans and, and so forth. And if the environment is VUCA, as you say, if it's rapidly respond, you need to be able to be more responsive. But how would you respond to the counter argument, which is that if you're constantly in sort of, you know, read and response mode, then you're not actually changing the environment around you to be better adapted to your purposes. So if you're, if you're constantly in responding to local information, so in the, in the language of kind of hill climbing, how do you avoid getting stuck on some local optimum when there might be some global optimum way out there and you need some kind of alignment that will take you to that global optimum? Yeah, I, I love that question because it again points to the fact that we tend to get stuck in this with an ideological perspective of good and bad, you know, just like decentralization is good and centralization is bad. No, like what does the organization need? The same thing with budgets and strategies. I know some organizations incredibly successful, like this Dutch organization that pretty much does no budget. I mean, it's a, literally one sheet of paper and it is incredibly successful organization because the nature of their business just requires this one paid budget. Like the one thing that they need to budget for is because they're growing so fast is how many new teams can we start because every new team loses us some money. And that's the one calculation that they need to do for budget. All the rest doesn't need to be budgeted. So why do it? In a traditional organization, you would still do budget simply because it feels reassuring because we now feel like we have some tangible control, but they've just asked the question, what do we need to do? Now, in other businesses, you actually need to look further ahead. If you are making an investment that is sort of a five-year investment in the technology, then you need to look five years ahead and by any means do it so that your hill climbing thing, you need to look at what is the route because that's the nature of that climb. The only thing is if you need to look five years ahead, do it and come up with what seems to be the best thing, but don't fall in love with your plans. Don't believe that they're the truth. They're just the best forecast that we could make at this point to make a decision that we needed to make at this point. And let's now constantly be open to any changing information that would change that. I've had quite a few leaders 
tell me like, oh yeah, you know, we no longer want to do strategies and we no longer want to do budgets because that's old style. And they go like, no, 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 wait a minute. Just what is the nature of your business? And what are the decisions that you will be making this year that need foresight, where you need to have an image of the future? And just for that, make your strategy and budget. But don't do it for any of the other reasons, which used to be that, oh, now I feel in control. I, I believe that I know what the future is like. And it just feels reassuring because there you're just fooling yourself. One of the practices that you describe is this idea of advice process, right? Where there's constant advice being given, not only sort of to people who would have been bosses at one point, but also to peers and a constant system of, of feedback. And a lot of successful companies here in Silicon Valley, you know, they really push the idea of advice. They, they reward their employees for giving advice and being open to advice. But it seems like it's a constant struggle to get managers to take advice and to solicit advice and to be responsive to advice. One of my theories is that people confuse voice and vote and they think that they don't want to give someone a voice because they're afraid they don't want to give up the vote. They want to maintain some form of, of control. What's the biggest resistance that you see in organizations to being more open to the flow of advice and feedback from different parts of the organization? Yeah, I think it's exactly what you say is the fear of loss of control. Like now I have asked for advice, I need to do something with it. But it's also often simply the fact that if I ask for advice, imagine, you know, we're colleagues, I ask you for advice and I ask other people. Now I have all of this complex information and I chart the best course and I might do something that goes against the advice that you gave me. And now I feel bad. It feels like I haven't listened to your advice. So that creates sort of an interrelational tension. Might need to go back to you and say, hey, Gregory, you know, I, I really listened to you carefully, but then there was all this other information. And ultimately, I decided that that felt like the best course. And so for a lot of people, it just feels so much easier. Let's not mess with any of this. Let me just ask. I'll just do what I think is right. But then, of course, we get stuff that's based on very incomplete information. And we make like these big mistakes because it's suboptimal. And in these sort of living organizations, in these complex systems, the real trick, the real power lies in, can we get all the information we need in a way that is as efficient as possible? And then make a little process of collective intelligence with all of that information that gets us the possibly best decision. And you can't do that if you don't collect advice from people. What's the processing method? You have ideas being generated all the time and, and you can't execute on all the ideas. How do you process the ideas, evaluate them, determine which ones are the good ones, which ones are the bad ones? If you're among a group of people who are very sensitive to each other's feelings, the easy solution is just to kind of accept all of them and then spread the budget so thinly that nothing ever gets done and everyone feels good, but nothing happens. Sometimes you got to say no and, and you have to prioritize and you have to evaluate on the merits. How do you put those processes in place? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's just, again, like, what is the nature of your business? And trusting that these systems will self-correct. So I'm, I'm going to give you examples of some self-managing organizations and how to deal with some of these questions. There's a factory in the north of France. They're in the automotive business. They make automotive parts. They're, again, incredibly successful. And they have all of these self-managing teams around the factory. And they, like any company, need to decide where to invest. And every team will have their own pet projects and their own machines that they want to replace or improve. And so they found that a yearly cycle works relatively well for them. It's relatively stable business. So once a year, they make their investment decisions. And then they just have a representative from each team come up with what they need, what they want. They add it all up. And they see, is that in line with what we feel is a responsible budget? If it's in line, we just do it. No questions asked. Because people know each other, people shift, go from one team to the other if there's too much work, too little work. So a team would feel very bad for doing something gold-plated that another team would see the very next day. So there's this sort of social control that makes that, hey, if there's not enough money to go around, we just trust everybody because we know that nobody will do something foolish because everybody else will see it. And that's worked extremely well for them. What happens if the total exceeds what we think is a reasonable investment budget? Now we need to haggle. And then these people just sit around a table and just go like, come on, you know, I know your machine. Like this one can do another few years. And like that person is a little shamed and retracts their thing. And then they haggle until they get it to the level that is, a, you know, and that's it. That's their process. It's that simple. You have more complex organizations. There's an organization in the U.S. in Sun Hydraulics in Florida. They're publicly listed on NASDAQ. They're also extraordinarily, ridiculously successful. They make hydraulic components. They have their own process. And there's like the tomato producer in California. And there they have really teams that challenge each other's budget because you have no hierarchy. There's no boss. 
So there's representatives from all the teams, and they come together and they lock themselves up in a room, and they will challenge each other's budget until some people retract what felt like it was too much. And so they use the collective intelligence. And the beautiful thing about this is because it's not a boss who's deciding, often a boss who has actually no clue, but these are people who know each other's domains, it takes all of the politics out. You need to prepare as good a proposal because you know that your colleagues are going to rip into your proposal and you're going to rip into theirs. And you don't want to look foolish, so you're not going to demand something that is ridiculous. So there's basically zero politics. People just prepare it like hell. And then they come together for a day or two. And then the thing is decided. And it takes all of the politics out that we have with these typical hierarchical decision makings. I think towards the end of the book, you talk about how much easier it is to build an organization like this from scratch as opposed to changing an organization. And I think part of that has to do with the things that lead to success in, in a more traditional organization are things that, that are in many ways harmful to an organization like this. So if you if you are particularly good at the politics, for instance, you're shaped by that. I think you're also talking about some folks that are you know broken, people who are just have lost the ability to offer advice, to take advice, lost the ability to self-motivate. If you make that transformation, there's going to be some people that are going to find it to be a mismatch. It's interesting. I mean, we start to have enough evidence, at least anecdotal evidence, to know more or less what is happening in most organizations that really make that leap for real. You notice that people at the bottom of the pyramid tend to love it. There's a very small percentage of people, you know, who've been so beaten by the system that they just want to go somewhere else and sort of be a victim. But most people, like, they just relish, like, they're alive again. Like, it's old people that used to, in the first months of their employment, see things that were wrong and wanted to change things tried for a few times and then realized, like, this is leading nowhere. Let's just forget, you know, I'm just going to do what they're asking me to do. I'm just going to collect my paycheck. That sounds like a university. (laughs) (laughs) And so a lot of these people suddenly flourish again. And stories you just hear over and over again is like how much they flourish, even in their personal lives with their spouses, with their children, like how people in their family tell me, like, this is a new person, like they're alive again. It often takes six months, sometimes a bit more, For people to actually trust it, like a lot of people at the bottom of the pyramid have become so distrustful so that this sounds like one more thing that management is forcing us into. And for a lot of people who've unlearned to take initiative, it can be painful to relearn to take risks and to take initiatives. But in the end, almost everyone flourishes and a very small percentage of people leave. The ranks of middle management and top management, it's often hardest to give up that formal power. And they go through a pretty predictable grieving process, where in the beginning, they only see what they lose. They lose their positional power. They lose the way they knew how to operate that system. You called it what, shadow limb pain? Exactly, exactly, right? And I I knew how to do things. And then I had my identity. My brother-in-law knew that I was a VP of something. More important than that is a grief I've realized of, hey, now that I realize that things work so much better without people in fixed managerial functions, it makes me go revisit my past and go like, so does that mean that what I've done for the last five years or 10 years was actually bad and harmful? And people like coming to grips with that is is actually a real process. But like a grief process, people come out on the other side. And what I hear over and over again from middle and senior managers is, wow, I get to do creative stuff again. Because a lot of the managerial positions are so uncreative in many ways, like you just sit in meetings and you pass information up and down and wow, I get to do creative work again. And wow, I feel so much freedom. I didn't even realize the pressure I was under to get people below me to be motivated and to do what they needed to do and to look good to the people upwards. And all of that has pretty much disappeared. And so the problem is when you tell that to people, they don't believe it at first. They have to experience it. So a lot of middle and senior managers only see that they're losing something, even though in the end, actually they're gaining a tremendous amount but they have to experience it. They won't believe it if you simply tell them. You describe these 12 companies in the book that are sort of pure types of this type of organization. But when you read about these, these practices, it reminds you of so many other companies. There's a book on Numi and when Toyota came into the General Motors plant. And just the thing that was so amazing about that story is that they didn't replace the employees, the same employees. And it seemed like the, the hardest part was really to gain the trust of the employees. And in your book, you talk a lot about how trust is important if you're going to do some kind of transformation like this. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise people will believe like this is just one more managerial fad and you know one more thing that they force us to do. It's interesting, like some of the examples of these organizations I researched among the 12 were organizations that were started with this new management style right from the beginning, but others were traditional organizations that had a new boss 
who had a different vision and changed things. And in the example of this factory in the north of France, this new CEO that came into a very traditional factory organization, he was really smart about it. Like he didn't change anything for a year, even though things were irking him. He was just on the shop floor all the time and really getting the trust of people. And when he felt that he had the trust, he then started saying like, this is no longer possible. I can no longer stand for this and, and change things. And I heard the exact similar story of AES. So AES is this American company, 40,000 people running power plants around the world. And they were started like this pretty much from the first day, but they bought power plants everywhere around the world, like in former Soviet republics and in Africa and in often super hierarchical environments. And here's this American company that buys them. People are super distrustful. And the one thing they did is that they changed the top two or three people and brought in people from who got their management style. And often they waited two to three years before they changed things. And their decision was, we'll wait till the moment where we feel that people trust us. That when these people at the top come and say this completely crazy thing, which is we're going to take away formal power structures and we're going to make everyone powerful and we're going to lose our formal power. We'll still be super powerful like everyone else. We'll still be able to make decisions like everyone else. But we no longer have the exclusive domain around that people will actually trust them that this is not some strange ploy, but it is is real. Well, there are two other planks, I think, that you talk about. And the wholeness one is one that increasingly, I think, People in HR departments are aware of this. I mean, certainly here in Silicon Valley, that the culture is is so important to attracting and retaining people and keeping a company functioning well. Talk a little bit about that, how you came to realize this and what are you seeing happening in companies? Yeah, so this was another thing that, I, that struck me that I saw happening in so many of these companies that I looked at is that if you think about traditional organizations, in most traditional organizations, we wear a professional mask most organizations, we don't show up in the way we show up with our very best friends, right? We feel that we need to look the part. Often that means that we look determined and we know what we're doing and we hide our doubts and we're often, you know, more masculine or aggressive and we leave our emotional selves behind and maybe our spiritual selves behind because that, that I wouldn't bring out in workplace. And really, if you think about it, there is a sense of fear behind that. The fear is if I were to really show up as myself, in all the glory of my humanity and my quirks and my vulnerability, I would make myself vulnerable. That could be used against me. And so, again, Gary Hamill has this good thing where he says, like, next to the, the work we're performing, we're all performing a second job, which is to keep up the appearances, right? Is to manage our image. And that is costly. And that, is, that takes a lot of energy. And what was striking to me was that a lot of these organizations that I looked at really had this realization that if we're hiding a big part of who we are behind our professional mask, we're also hiding a big part of our energy, of our creativity, of our passion, right? And if so many organizations, so many workplaces feel somewhat lifeless, it's because we actually bring very little life to it. We come with this curated, somewhat lifeless self to work. What do you think the logic of that is? I mean, if you think about the, the more hierarchical organizations, why is it that they would reward that sort of regimented behavior? Yeah, because I think historically the idea was if we're just going to have one manager for so many employees, we want to be able to control them. We need to control them. And the best way to control them... They need to be interchangeable. Right. I mean, think about the army. We're going to shave everybody's head. We're going to dress them exactly the same. We're going to take anything away that makes you unique and special because that is the only way we've found that you're going to do something that you don't like to do. And work is the thing you need to be paid to do, right? That was the way people thought of work. Exactly. And the army shows that. I mean, if you don't make people interchangeable, if people go into their selfhood, you never get people to kill each other. There's a lot of research and studies been done about that. Like most soldiers shoot above the target because they don't want to kill somebody. And so you actually need to shave their heads and dress them the same and yell at them and, you know, make them stand in line and do everything exactly the same so that you grow out of your selfhood and you become this, this interchangeable unit. Even in the more modern MBA paradigm, we still have this vision that a good organization is like a well-oiled machine with cogs and the cogs should be interchangeable. And so there's this unspoken fear that, hey, Gregory, if you're going to show up as yourself in your Hawaii shirt, you're going to be uncontrollable. And of course, we know that actually the opposite is true. If you actually allow people to be as much themselves as possible, if you have good structures and good decision-making mechanisms, all the things that we talked about before, that selfhood is actually going to drive a lot of your passion and your energy. 
And so a lot of these organizations have looked very carefully at all of the HR processes, for instance, like how do we hire people? How do we onboard people? How do we train people? How do we... Because these are all of the processes that are often so fear-ridden that that's where we wear a mask. Like, think about it. Recruitment, that's where the lying starts. If you try to be recruited, you're going to put the best thing in your resume. You're going to try to hide a few things. You're going to try to, like, look absolutely the best part of yourself. And the organization is doing the same thing. There's this whole crazy thing called employer branding, where we apply marketing techniques to make the organization look better than it is to be able to attract people. And then at the first interview, both know of each other that they're sort of lying and are trying to poke hole into each other's lies and to try to find out, like, is this for real? Right? That's what the whole interview is about. Like, is this for real? Right? What an ugly way to start. And so what a better way if what some of these companies like this factory in the north of France or these tomato guys where there is no HR department that is doing any of the recruiting. It's the people on the shop floor, you know, who are recruiting their own colleagues and and there's no bullshit because there are people on the shop floor and they will see through the bullshit and they will just check out the colleague. And so we have a much, much more earnest conversation, real conversation from the beginning. And, you know, everybody can drop their shoulders and just relax and not have to keep up a certain mask or a certain pretense. That would make the employees, I think, better learners in their environment. I mean, I was wondering if you had applied these uh, frameworks to the educational environment. There's not a huge difference between educational environments and work environments now, but the traditional educational environment is that you want people sitting in rows and looking at the blackboard and everything's very regimented and, and the educational, the curriculum is more or less, you know, in sync. And then the alternative kind of Montessori style approach is really very much about bringing your whole self to the environment and following your, your impulses. Yeah, very true. I mean, our school system was created with the scientific industrial revolution. And it's basically a factory model, right? Where we take same age groups in and they should be interchangeable. And, oh no, they're so different. That's so frustrating. And we get them through a batch processing system, just like in a factory. And we apply the same thing to everybody. And we hope to get the same results out. And then, of course, unfortunately, we have some waste products because some some of these widgets will just have a default. Like some of these kids just won't learn what we want them to learn. And so, you know, they will go out. But really, that's why we have standardized tests. And, you know, everything should be standardized. And that's one approach. And we've pushed that again to its limits. And we're seeing all the mental health problems. But we're also seeing like all of the teachers who simply actually even if they believe in that model, are really unhappy in it. And as you say, there's other models and and Montessori and Sudbury Valley schools that have a whole different premise. We don't need some smart people at the very top to think through the curriculum that we now force feed to the kids. They actually have an innate desire to learn if we don't beat it out of them. And so how can we create a, a structure, an environment where based on their innate desire, they will just pull out of teachers what they want And in those cases, you often need to stop them from wanting to learn because they're so passionate about it. You talk about psychological safety as being a key component in this wholeness movement, right? It's interesting because two years, I think, after I published my book, Google made this huge sort of landmark study where they looked at like what explains why certain teams perform better than others. And it looked at so many variables and is it the manager, is it this, is it that? And the one thing that really stood out was the psychological safety in the team. And for me, it was just a confirmation of of what I'd seen. And and to me, it feels very, very common sense. But it's still cool to have somebody like Google actually do a really rigorous examination of this. And basically, what this means is that in these complex environments that we're in, what we need is to surface the collective intelligence and the collective sensing of everyone in the group as best as we can, and then channel that really efficiently into good and fast decisions. And the best way to do that is a self-managing framework. But even if you have a manager like in Google's framework where they have traditional management, it is to have psychological safety where people speak up and say like, hey, I see something that you guys might not see and I think this is not a good decision. And so you need that psychological safety. For sure. And you mentioned a bunch of their practices, which we won't need to get into, but I think most companies are now, at least the ones that I know of here in Silicon Valley, they, they seem to be adopting all of these practices, whether it's cutting down on meetings, particularly now with remote work, people are becoming highly aware of the the wasted time spent on meetings, not monitoring people's hours, giving people unlimited vacation time and letting them manage their workload and modifying performance evaluation, maybe making it more frequent, maybe making it richer, more helpful type of feedback that you give to the employees. Maybe you should take some credit for some of these movements that we're seeing happening. Do you think it's driven by HR? Or do you think it's driven from the top in these organizations? I think it's mostly different from the top. I fear that the power of HR is often limited. A lot of these things really go straight to your fundamental belief systems. If I, as the boss, as the CEO, 
believe that people are fundamentally lazy and need to be motivated with individual targets and incentives. That's the kind of organization that I will run if I believe that we should stress collaboration and we should have team bonuses. Then that's what I will implement. And if I believe that people are lazy, that you can't trust them, I won't have unlimited vacation time. I think ultimately HR is very, very dependent on some of these core, often unexamined assumptions that the founders or the CEOs of organizations have. You repeatedly mentioned the importance of what you call a CEO. You put quotations around it because the leader of the organization is not a typical CEO. And the organizations that you mentioned in the book all have very powerful, very, very charismatic, very influential leaders. And I think one of the key roles that they have is to define the purpose of, of the organization, to defend and protect the purpose of the organization. And they have this function that you call holding the space. What exactly is that? And how can you reconcile this idea of a very, very strong leader with an organization that's really a complex adaptive system? Yeah. Imagine you have this old management style of agrarian age, right? Pure hierarchy, very fixed ranks. And now you come along with all of these managerial innovations of management by objectives and innovation. You need a CEO who's not only a visionary, but you need a CEO who is also going to get everybody to see that that is now how we're going to play. So you need somebody who is holding the space for this new management style and practice. And that's the same thing that we're seeing with this new leap that is happening, is all of the time, people in the organization, simply because we've all been trained that way, will want to go back to more traditional business school type management. When something goes wrong, people will say, oh, that's because we don't have formal hierarchies. That's because we don't have mechanisms where people need to sign off on things. So we need to reintroduce some of these things. Even though the, these things happen all the time in traditional organizations, but people will blame the new model for this. So it's like going back to the old religions, going back to the old icons when in times of stress, right? When there's a plague, that's when you whip out the old icons from your grandparents' age. Exactly. The old playbook. And so one of the roles of the founders or the CEO who's once this new approach is to constantly hold the space and say, no, no, this is not what we're going to do. This is not how we operate. Remember, we operate in this way. And so they're both extraordinarily needed and powerful in that way, in holding the purpose and holding the vision for the management that they want to have. And on the other hand, other people are, you know, just then take on lots of decision-making and they often take way fewer decisions. And I can't tell you how many CEOs I've met who suddenly find themselves with lots of time on their hand. Because in a traditional permit system, the only place where all the lines converge is at the level of the CEO. So any decision that needs some important form of coordination has to be made by the CEO. That's why all of these CEOs are completely overworked in meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, asked to make all of these decisions with very little information under really stressful circumstances. Now in these new models, a lot of that coordination happens with the advice process amongst the people who know about the decision that needs to be made. And the CCOs are involved in way fewer decisions, suddenly have a lot of time on their hands, and now can really step back and really look at strategic things, but also sometimes get involved in a detailed project just because it's fun, because they like to do that, because you know it's, it's really fun. This was driven home to me most powerfully by the CEO at the time of Sun Hydraulics. So it's, again, this publicly listed company, NASDAQ, in Florida. And I was having a meeting with the CEO. I was interviewing him. And I asked him to look at his calendar for the week. And the whole week, he had four meetings. And two of them were with me. So here's the CEO of a publicly listed company who only had two other meetings other than me scheduled for that week. And that sounds crazy, impossible for any CEO, except if you make the leap to that system. And so there's then way more time to just think, to just be in a relationship with people, to take a step back. And so in many ways, they make way fewer decisions, but they're much more influential because they hold that bigger picture and, and hold that space for everyone else. Now, you talk about bills of rights. You talk about mission statements. I think the CEO, perhaps part of their job is to define and defend the culture, right? Maybe to be the chief culture officer's at the business school where I work, we had uh, about a decade ago, went through this exercise where we created defining principles. And those defining principles were explicit articulations of things that people could more or less agree on. You say that a lot of the mission statements are kind of just a waste of time, right? Like Google says their mission is to organize all the information in, in the world. Maybe that doesn't say enough about what the culture needs to be or should be or is. 
what's the role of these explicit articulations of culture, of rights, of obligations, of expectations, and what's the role of the CEO in promoting them and defending them? Before we get into the specifics, I think it's important to stress this one point, is that the real purpose for almost all more or less traditional organization is self-preservation. Ultimately, this is what it's all about. Most organizations, if they're for profit, their goal is to maximize profit and market share, or if they're nonprofits, is to just ensure self-preservation. In the 15 years that I've been involved in large organizations as a consultant, many various roles, I unfortunately don't remember a single executive meeting where people, when faced with a difficult decision, went back to their values or their principles or their mission statement and said, like, what does our mission require from us? So what do our principles? That's why a lot of these things just simply ring hollow. And that's why if you go to a lot of organizations, you make the test and you ask them, can you tell me what your values are? People scratch their head and go like, I think there was something around innovation. I think there was something around, right? Well, most people at Amazon, they know their 14 principles, I think. Yeah. So that, that's sort of the test. Like, are these things actually something that we bring up in a meeting that help us in our decision making, that give us guidance in the way that principles and values and, and mission statements should? And the biggest test for me is, are we willing to forego something that is juicy, that is profitable, that would expand our market share because we feel like it's not in our mission and our values? And you can ask the question, like, when was the last time you decided to forego something important? And most organizations can't really remember something because the truth is that that is not their guiding star. The guiding star is ultimately profit and, and market share. So the, the first thing I would simply ask is, is this for real? Because otherwise, there's not much point in my sense. What you see some of these new organizations doing is to articulate something that actually goes deeper than values, but to articulate deeper set of assumptions around people and work that underlie the organization. It's an interesting exercise to do if you ask people, what of these organizations, every time AES, they board an organization after two years when people were trustful enough, they would do this exercise and go like, if you look at your structures and your management practices today, what would you say are sort of the hidden assumptions that underlie these practices? And often what people come up is, is pretty similar. And it's like, if you haven't gone to university, you have no say. If you're not a white man above 50, you have your voice doesn't count. Or everybody in the shop floor are thieves because we get controlled every time when we come in and when we go out and we're not trusted on anything. And so it's actually really powerful to state like what is the underlying assumptions behind a lot of the practices that we have. If people have working hours that they need to clock in and clock out, like what is the assumption behind that? And so some of these organizations then make explicit new assumptions and use that as sort of a testing ground. Like every time there's a call for going back to more hierarchy, going back to more control mechanisms, people and go say like, no, 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 remember? These are assumptions. Like this is what we operate from. And it, it seems to serve them really well. That's a brilliant exercise. I think every company should do that periodically. Go and see what the implicit assumptions are and see if they can try and change them. Frederick, this has been fantastic. There's so much richness to your work. I wish we could talk about it forever. But I think if you want to learn more, you got to go get the book. And I hope you continue to do your work and continue to work with organizations and help them to transform. I know my students, they all want to go work for purpose-driven organizations. They all want to make their work something that's, that's meaningful and not something that's completely separate from the rest of their lives. And so hopefully we'll see more and more opportunities for them to do that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to everybody listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.